We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hello and welcome to The Interruption, the Global Institute for Tomorrow podcast. Following on from our previous discussion on the commonalities of containing the coronavirus outbreak, and in particular how public trust in the effectiveness of state institutions has proven very valuable during the crisis, we are now turning the discussion to what the COVID outbreak may mean for the future of Asia. As usual, I'm here with Chandra Nair, the founder of GIFT. So Chandran, we've seen that urban areas have been most significantly affected by COVID. Asian cities are renowned for being crowded in either modern settings like Hong Kong or cities with less developed infrastructure like Delhi. Will this outbreak change the nature of urbanization in Asia? Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for asking these uh, important questions. Will they change the nature of urbanization? Um, Too early to tell. Do they need to change the nature of urbanization? I think we should all be clear it will need to. And which part of, uh, which feature of urbanization in Asia and the large developing countries is uh, essentially being a bane for any citizen of these uh, cities? It's essentially overcrowding. Now, if you live in a, uh, in a richer, wealthier city like Hong Kong, uh, there is a huge amount of overcrowding here, and we've seen that uh, the economic disparities mean that essentially uh, uh, lots of people live in very cramped quarters. But Hong Kong, on the other hand, has high, uh, a high degree of essentially infrastructure uh, to make sure that uh, conditions uh, do not essentially um, get to a point where you know unhygienic uh, conditions are the norm within the public space. Now that's Hong Kong, that could be a Singapore, that's a Tokyo. But most countries are not uh, wealthy countries like, uh, like uh, Hong Kong, uh, uh, Singapore or, or Japan. And therefore the, the predominant urban scene in many Asian cities is essentially one of crowded, overcrowded, uh, unsanitary and essentially polluted. Uh, in an era where we believe now that we're going to have to essentially be prepared for other sorts of uh, pandemics, etc., it begs the question, how many more people are we going to put into cities, uh, in cities which essentially governments are unable to provide the basic protections, uh, which include therefore uh, uh, well-designed homes, uh, we're not talking about large homes, but well-designed, proper sanitation facilities, uh, proper health and uh, health and uh, uh, healthcare, etc. So I would argue that um, one of the big things coming out of this would be, firstly, questioning why more urbanization. I think that's a fundamental thing. I've argued for many years that uh, I think it's premised on a very old economic idea that larger economic, larger uh, urban areas with larger populations essentially provide e- economies of scale and productivity gains. Uh, I would beg to defer, uh, and the evidence is very clear. The evidence is we can't manage them anymore. And then in the context of something like this, it is very clear they pose a very, very high risk, not to just the citizens of those places, those c- cities, but the neighboring areas. And let's not take a place like... Uh, 
a crowded city like you know Jakarta, Bangkok, or, or Mumbai. Let's look at what's happening in New York. Now, the inability in a crowded city like that, the inability even in a first world country to to manage that, particularly where behaviors in those uh, those cities are so different. Uh, so you have different societal norms that kick in. So it's not just poor versus rich. It's also how people see the, their their freedom. So yes, I believe um, a major rethink is needed. Uh, and uh, whether it will change, we will see. But I'd like to think uh, of us at GIFT and other think tanks uh, helping to stimulate that, that new discussion. Mm. So it sounds like cities are reaching their carrying capacity, as it were. Different oh, many have gone well beyond their well capacity. Beyond. This right. is why we have seen uh, Jakarta moving, right? So Jakarta decided to move uh, six months ago, but the planning's been going for years. Why? Completely unmanageable. And that's the infrastructure cramming issue. Now the threats of pandemics, etc., put an added layer of complexity and say, hmm, to policymakers, no more. We yeah. can't do this. So let's, let's zoom in on that infrastructure. You mentioned sanitation, you mentioned healthcare. So how do you think the healthcare systems in cities across Asia are going to need to change in the future? Well, I think the healthcare uh, point I want to make is not just a city's issue. Mm. So it's essentially national. What we have seen, and let's just take the mask for as a as a uh, example or as a primer of the, the, the our times, uh, the emblem of our times. Um, and we this is not a discussion about whether masks are necessary or not. But everyone's being told wear masks or are wearing masks. Um, but what we found out is there's just not enough masks. So if you look at a country like Malaysia, um, which is the world's largest producer of everything from uh, circuit boards, or one of the world's largest producers of circuit boards, uh, rubber gloves, condoms, um, did not have any masks. Uh, it had to be gifted, I believe, from China, 10 million, etc. But Malaysia could quite readily make mass. And so you go through that whole spectrum of essentially basic health care, um, uh, goods and services, and then let's just talk about the goods, so the masks, the aprons, then the, uh, the sanitizers, etc. A lot of this uh, depend on complex global supply chains, celebrated everywhere as the great way to keep costs down, get things made, etc. But we found out as well, and not to, and it's not China. I'm not blaming China because China can't be blamed from it for for it. But globalization resulted in so many of these goods uh, being produced essentially in China, or the ingredients they have may might have a multinational brand on it, but they are essentially made in China, blended maybe locally, etc. but they are not made in these countries. So one of the key things here, uh, I'm think, I, I, I think will require rethink is that essentially basic healthcare, and I'll talk about more advanced healthcare um, uh, goods, but basic healthcare, there needs to be local industries. So there's no reason why that Indonesia, Malaysia, or Thailand can't be making uh, a great percentage of all the sanitizers, etc. It needs cleaning agents, etc. But also at that same time, I would urge great innovations at looking at products which have also minimal environmental impacts, because that's another topic that I, I've mentioned before, that the over-sanitization is essentially now not accounted into the externalities of the way we're going to behave on, in terms of the natural environment. Uh, 
not simply on water, but the entire ecosystem. But imagine research centers in tropical Asia that are in, from Cambodia to Vietnam to Malaysia that are looking at uh, uh, products indigenous to those countries which have properties could they essentially be integrated into essentially cleaning a cleaning agents that have a very minimal uh, environmental impact. And we know that um, many pro many of the plants etc. In, in the uh, these parts of the world, uh, there's ancient histories about how these are used, uh, from the neem tree in India to a whole range, uh, range. But these have all been crowded out as essentially a large multinational corporations essentially took over the space. And what you're left with is uh, fringe activity in uh, rich places where people buy something they call, which is rather exotic, called a natural cleaner and it's usually for people who can afford it. But these should be essentially part of that. So when I talk about healthcare, it's the whole range. Now, one final point is essentially we've also seen, and maybe uh, more so than ever, people have finally understood, uh, come, to, come to understand there's such a thing called a ventilator. Uh, now the ventilator can be a very complex equipment as we've, uh, we, we are seeing on TV when we look at uh, coverage of the, the scarcity of ventilators in the US and, and, and the UK. But the ventilator can also be a very simple equipment, a piece of equipment. It could be indigenously built. That is not to say that people in Cambodia must have just the, just the indigenous stuff. But what the point I'm trying to make is in many of the situations where ventilators are needed, we do not need the 50,000 US dollar ventilator. So can't we have industries in, region, in these countries that produce the $2,500 ventilator? And there are examples. There are examples of people who have created local, be built, bare bones, but highly effective incubators for children uh, in Vietnam, etc. So these things can be done. But governments need to essentially support these. And at some point, these things will also create essentially technology centers, which become more advanced, are not you know, going to be essentially bought up by some multinationals, so governments protect them. They are indigenous, they are local, using best engineering capabilities. So, um, that's where I think the healthcare industry needs a revolution, mm. both from the point of view of sanitation, masks, and aprons, etc., but also things like equipment. And, not, I, and I'm only talking about the ventilator, but the whole range of other things yeah. that we should be building them. Yeah, so it sounds like it needs to have a rethink of the supply chain. Needs to move internal and almost self consider self-sufficiency yes. precisely. Yeah. So that obviously naturally leads to the next question, which is if in the future society is aiming to be more self-sufficient and in terms of Medicare, they're going to be looking at medicines and equipment that are sourced internally with local supply chains. What about food? Yeah. So one, but one thing about supply chains too, I mean, supply chains have been celebrated as some great innovation because we saw the whole world connected. And that's a good thing, but this is also shown we are exposed. But let's remember, the whole point of these complex supply chains was, maybe not the whole point, but a key element of the driver for these complex supply chains was to reduce costs and 
externalize the externalities of this. Okay, that too can be now questioned. Oh no, should be questioned, and we can redesign and use the healthcare sector as an example, whereby we essentially don't have complex supply chains. They're all national and local, and built and protected by the government. And let's not use all arguments that the government should not intervene, etc. Right. So now you come to the question of food. Mm. Um, so. Do we need more, any more reminders that essentially a country that can't feed its own people in this new era is essentially exposed to the greatest possible risk, greater than the financial risk, I would argue. So let, let's really think about therefore, rather than modernize, and imagine modernization is essentially more urbanization, people in factories building things that essentially just make uh, more our lives convenient, buying surplus stuff, etc. And I'm not arguing for a complete dismantling of an economic model here, but and that's, that's the work that many people will start to look at and question. But when it comes to food, it's very clear that uh, uh, a crisis like this, when one third of the world is shut, and let's hope not many more, uh, 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 many more people join the, the ranks of being locked down, you need to have your food supply system. So when the economic system shuts down, if you are to avoid civil unrest, there are two things that are going to be really important, that people have essentially uh, access to the basics. And the basics, which I've also spoken about in my book of the sustainable state, will include uh, essentially uh, food. I think the first one I mentioned is food safe and secure. The globalization of the food supply chain is underpinned by essentially cheap food, which is not necessarily clean because a lot of it is industrial food uh, and not necessarily now as we've seen a secure supply. So a country like Malaysia should now target itself as essentially we are going to be 100% self-sufficient in essentially the staple, which is rice. Give it a timeline, but then you can't just say we're going to be stable, we're going to be stable in rice, you're going to have to look at how do we get stable uh, self-sufficiency in rice uh, production, and that actually opens up a whole host of possibilities, economic possibilities, because if you want to grow that kind of rice, to that, you want to grow that amount of rice, then you're going to need all the inputs, you know. So uh, where are the fertilizers and chemicals, etc., uh, fertilizers and herbicides, etc., coming from? Well, at the moment, they are global supply chains. When they're shut, what do you do? You buy them from elsewhere. So you're held hostage to all of these things. Um, but what about a Malaysian industry or an ind uh, that essentially produce its own inputs into increasing agricultural productivity, and they don't need to be more of the same. Uh, and how about a research industry that essentially develops inputs into those uh, for the agricultural self-sufficiency that is based on minimizing environmental impacts? Today, we still think in the developing world that is science that we cannot own. We think that is science that somebody else does somewhere because that's where the scientists are. But at the same time, we are training hundreds of thousands of people. And I argue often, we need more software engineers, like I need a hole in my head. But what we do need is agro-scientists. So rather than sponsoring you know, more startups in essentially software development, 
my God, let us go and get, let us go and fund scholarships for students and study at home in the field and do research on agroscience, self-sufficiency. We don't seem to think that way in policy because we went on the trajectory. We would borrow these ideas. And when it came to food production, we borrowed the idea of global supply chains. We don't have to be self-sufficient. We will take rural people and put them in urban areas and they will make other things. And uh, we will essentially have industrial agriculture. So all of this needs to be needs to change. And agriculture will require a major rethink. But I would argue, and I've said this many times before, the next generation farmer will be the new knowledge worker. Uh, and we need uh, millions of them uh, working in the field. And I hope that doesn't sound outrageous at this point. Working in the field is not working uh, without a shirt on your back with a buffalo and you're back to the sun. It would be a very different way. That's why we use technology. But driven by the self-sufficiency and building up a host of other capabilities which requires R&D, but also research that then lends itself to application, production, etc. So that's really the complete rethink that we need. And I think, you know, as I speak, I hope no one thinks this sounds outrageous. Think about it. Uh, Vietnam this week, I believe, which is one of the largest exporters of rice in in Asia, essentially said it's it's, uh, not exporting for a while. It's holding back. and does, does Vietnam have a responsibility to essentially continue to export? Or does it essentially do what any country would do? We need to be self-sufficient first because it has to protect its population. So countries in Southeast Asia who were, the Philippines is a great example, who was once uh, self-sufficient were better get real. And uh, let's not, uh, let, then there is the discussion to be had between cash crops and uh, mm. all, all of those things as well. And there's a whole host of policies around farming, around land ownership, around the way government subsidies work or don't work, and how governments protect farmers, pay for the price. But that also then will require urban, uh, urban populations who have been used to cheap staples to understand they will now have to pay for a proper price, which then has larger social ramifications in terms of uh, having what I think would be positive impacts in uh, discouraging overconsumption. Yeah. So those are the things that we should think about. So it sounds like COVID and the current crisis is almost a platform for change. It sounds like things will change in cities across Asia. Instead of having a specialized economy that is outward bound, it's going to be a diversified internal economy that is aiming to be self-sufficient in terms of the cities, in terms of healthcare, in terms of food, the basic needs. And connected to the world, but essentially protecting and building the capability to be self-sufficient the next time the world has to shut down. But also in that understanding that they are preventing and reducing the risks in terms of the way the world operates. And more importantly for me, it's also protecting the most vulnerable people from the uh, increasing marginalization of their labor in a globalized world, which, you know, I'm not against globalization, which essentially they are marginalized as essentially technology and essentially industrial 
ways of producing things take over. And you know, there's, this doesn't need to be something that I need to describe in detail, but why have so many poor people, so many people from your rural areas rushed into large cities and created these large cities where essentially almost half the population live in slums? Because they have been disenfranchised as their means of production, if I can call it, which is to produce food, has not been valued. And that includes the ecosystem valuations of the services they provide, etc. This is a real good opportunity to think differently. And this is why, you know, we are talking about leadership reset, thinking differently. We have a whole generation of, um, of policy makers who don't have this vision of the world because they came from a, a, a vision, if they were, if they were uh, you know, born in the 50s and 60s, of essentially growth and through essentially modernization and almost um, a disrespect for agriculture and food production. That you can just look at the data in terms of the amount of investments in agriculture uh, compared to urbanization or essentially industrialization. We need all of those three but you will be amazed at how little has been done in agriculture. So are we surprised that large amounts of poor people have left the rural areas to become essentially second-class citizens in urban areas? And now we've got these urban uh, areas which are unmanageable. So all of this thing needs to be thought. And then we have a younger generation of policy makers and business leaders who are all attuned to the Western idea about productivity, uh, about uh, how to essentially globalize the world, how to price things, etc., and who work for large corporations without thinking, essentially fundamentally about the the nature of the complex relationships. And if we don't manage those carefully, we will see essentially many of these unintended consequences, uh, un uh, yeah, consequences play out in social unrest. Mm. Well, thank you, Chandra. I think that's a lot to think about between economic reform the nature of food production, wealth distribution. Certainly COVID reframes everything that we, we currently hold dear in terms of our thought processes. So a lot to think about, and we'll be continuing this discussion in the next podcast. So thank you very much, Chandra. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you're interested in GIFT, you can find us at www.global-inst.com Thank you. Thank you. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. No, sir.